and a couple of resource books. They're not the only ones you can use, but I say uh, a lot of good substantial information. You'll find several pages sometimes just on your passage in those books rather than a paragraph or two. And, use, and, and again, all of them take a different tack. So you'll find some kind of information in one author. You'll find different approaches in the other. So you have plenty of material. Chris, you got my email? Yep, I did. Thank you. I, I thought that was the answer, but I just wanted to check with you. Yeah, anything that's a digital version of a, a book in print is fine. That's what I assumed. Just wanted to ask. Right. <laughs> Other sources, you have no idea. Uh, the background of the person writing the article. Yeah. Uh, whether they, they have less classes than you do, who knows? Yeah. When you publish something, uh, it's out there in the open, and people, if they uh, think it's hogwash, will write about it. Yep. That's the big difference. Yeah, thank you. Welcome. Is Vincent there? All right, we're going to get started in just a minute. Most of the letters of Paul. Uh, we won't do Philemon, that's 24 verses. One person, it's easy, probably one of the easiest to read and figure out. And uh, probably won't get to the pastoral letters uh, to Timothy and Titus. I'll give you a quick summary of the purpose of those letters, but we won't get into the specific issues. I'm hoping to do finish 1 Corinthians tonight, uh, do 2 Corinthians. Try to see if I can do, uh, see what we, if we can get to Romans. Yeah. Next week for sure will be Ephesians. <coughs> Whatever, we may do Colossians and 2 Thessalonians. We usually have a whole semester to do this, but so, hang on. Okay. All right, last week we were. We're into 1 Corinthians, and uh, one of the main problems with the Corinthians is that, as Paul said, they were acting as though they were living in an exalted state. Uh, the exalted existence that Jesus entered into involved total transformation of his body. And uh, Paul reminds them that... Uh, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. There is going to be a future resurrection of the dead when Christians will participate in Christ's exalted status, but that's only when they themselves are raised in glorious immortal bodies. So going around and acting as though there's no sin, there's no evil, you know, there's no problems in the world, or they're not touched by anything in their own personal life, Paul says they're kidding themselves. 
Christ is exalted because he's already been resurrected. Uh, you participate in Christ's death and resurrection through baptism, but you haven't received that exalted status yet. It only will take place after yourself is uh, resurrected from the grave. So Paul says that uh, Christian believers will one day enjoy the full benefits of their salvation, but the end hasn't come yet. Christians don't yet have the full benefits of salvation. They're not yet exalted to a heavenly status. The elect are still living in a world of sin and evil. And they'll continue to do so until the end comes. And Paul says that's the basic problem underlying all the disputes and arguments that are going on in the, uh, the Christian Corinthian community. Okay, uh, now I just I know we're stuck last week. Uh, the particular issues that the Corinthians uh, brought up and asked Paul to address. One of them is marriage, divorce, and celibacy. They have questions about it. In chapters 7 through 15, Paul answers their questions on several crucial topics. The first item concerns human sexuality. It's in chapter 7, verses 1 to 40. And it's a subject in which Paul takes a practical interest. We know from his own statements that he clearly prefers a single life without any kind of sexual involvement. And you can notice how he begins this section, chapter 7, verse 1, by declaring that it is a good thing for a man to have nothing to do with women. So he starts off. Then he closes by observing that women whose husbands have died better off if they don't remarry. So uh, Donna was going to say she was going to maybe switch the other classes tomorrow night because they're coming in from Long Island. Yeah. So yeah. makes sense. Right. Thanks, Cindy. Appreciate it. So he closes that same way that women whose husbands have died are better off if they don't remarry. Now, although Paul doesn't find marriage personally attractive, nowhere does he forbid others to marry. He says that clearly in chapter 7, verses 2 to 9. He also stresses the mutual obligations of marriage stating that husbands and wives are equally entitled to each other's sexual love. That's certainly countering uh, some notions in the Corinthian community that uh, men and women weren't supposed to have any sexual relations. And from a pragmatic point of view, he describes marriage as an inevitably painful experience that can interfere with the believer's religious commitment. You know, his whole idea, like in the gospel, you, you can't serve two masters. Paul says you're divided if you're married. You have to uh, you know, please your wife and responsibilities to your children. At the same time, you're supposed to uh, follow and carry out the will of God, please him. So he thinks that's a, you know, a difficult thing to, to balance. Paul's general principle is for everyone to remain in whatever state 
whether it's single or married, free or slave, to remain that the believer was in when he So if you're married, stay married. If you're single, you should stay single. And interestingly enough, although he's aware of Jesus' command forbidding divorce, he concedes that a legal separation is acceptable when a non-Christian wishes to leave his or her Christian spouse. Verses 10 to 24 in chapter 7. That's really the source of what we call the Pauline privilege. That you can analyze the Petrine privilege and the Pauline privilege. Petrine privilege is when a person who is non-Catholic converts to the Catholic faith wants to marry a Catholic, but they have already been married before. So the Petrine privilege is granted now for their status. Uh, they've become Catholic and wish to enter a union with a Catholic. So it's what they call the Petrine privilege. Pauline privilege here is that when there's a mixed marriage between the Catholic and non-Catholic, and the non-Catholic leaves the marriage, abandons the person, leaves the marriage. There we have what we call the Pauline privilege. So we would look into that case to see, you know, if uh, you know that person, the Catholic party, would be able to enter a second marriage. So that goes back here to First Corinthians. There. Now it's important to remember that Paul's advice, especially on celibacy, is presented in the context of an imminent parousia. Jesus was going to be coming back very, very soon. makes the point that those who are unmarried remain free to wait upon the Lord without distraction. In other words, they can get themselves ready for the second coming. No other distraction uh, take away from that preparation. Freedom from sexual ties that bind one to the world is extremely practical, he says, because the times we live in will not last long. Is that in verses 25 to 35, chapter 7. So Paul regards singleness not as a prerequisite to a higher spiritual state. He's not saying that a single person is, uh, you know, spiritually better. But singleness is a practical response to an eschatological situation. In other words, you know, the return of the Lord is coming soon. Practically, to prepare for that is to remain single. You don't have to divide it into loyalties or obligations. So he's not mandating it. So he's saying, in light of the imminent return of Christ, it would be better if you are single to stay single in order to prepare for that coming. But another question that uh, apparently occurred in that church was the importance of women. In recent decades, Paul's regulations about women's roles in the church have been kind of criticized, even attacked as culture-bound and chauvinistic. And because we know so little the early Christian practice is 
difficult to determine to what degree women originally shared in church leadership. We do know from the Gospels that Jesus counted many women among his most loyal disciples. And Paul himself refers to several women as his, quote, fellow workers, which is that in Philippians 4.3. <clears throat> and in the last chapter of the letter to the Romans, chapter 16, in which Paul lists the missionary Prisca, short for Priscilla. He mentions her ahead of her husband, Aquila. In the letter, he asks those who were receiving his letter to support Phoebe. She was the presiding officer in the Cambridge Church to support her in carrying out her administrative duties. So she had administrative uh, responsibilities for the church there. first letter here to the Corinthians, Paul seems to impose restrictions on women's participation in church services. It's insistence that women cover their heads with veils chapter 11, 3 to 16, is open to a variety of interpretations. Some wonder whether it's uh, Paul's concession to existing Jewish and Greco-Roman customs of secluding women, an attempt to avoid offending <coughs> patriarchal prejudices. You know, in Jewish services, men sit on one side, the women sit on the other. Well, is Paul uh, mentioning that uh, women should do that, cover their heads as uh, a way of separating the sexes in terms of worship? He said, women unveil their physical attractiveness, he says, it may distract male onlookers. Or even, as he says, sexually tempt angels, such as those who lusted for mortal women before the flood. Quoting back to Genesis 6, Son of Gomorrah. And on the other hand, the question is is the veil a symbol of a woman's religious authority that she's supposed to wear and prophesying before the congregation? So she's in a worship service and exercising the role of a prophetess. Okay. A veil was required or expected to be worn by her. So whether it's a nod to the patriarchal customs separating men and women right, so that uh, men are not tempted by women, or whether it's a sign that uh, you know, in worship services, if a woman is going to exercise prophecy, that this is what is expected to wear the veil. Now, Paul's argument for relegating women to a subordinate position in the church strikes us as convoluted and illogical. And some even wonder whether it's an insertion 
to make this letter agree with 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. That says here, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or pain. Also, the women should adorn themselves modestly and sensibly in seemly apparel, not with braided hair, gold or pearls, or costly attire, but by good deeds, as befits women who profess religion. But a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over man, and she is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then he. Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived and became a transgression. Now, what he's doing there Yeah, he grants women an active role praying and prophesying during worship, but at the same time he argues that the female is a secondary creation. She's made from man who is directly created by God. And it's interesting that Paul uses a second account of human origins, which you find in chapter 2 of Genesis, to support his view of a human sexual hierarchy. So the second account in Genesis is where Eve is made out of the rib of Adam. But Adam was created first, and he was second. He seems to take that account of creation to support his view of a human sexual hierarchy. But he could have easily cited the first creation account, in which male and female were created simultaneously, both in the image of God. He opted for the second account of creation rather than the first. Given Paul's teaching that Christian equality transcends all distinctions among believers, including those of sex, class, and nationality, mentions that in Galatians, Paul's choice of the Genesis creation story would seem a little bit arbitrary. You know, he says there's no distinctions, male and female, slave or free, etc. But here, you know, he's certainly making a distinction about the equality of men and women. And he bases it on the second account of creation, Genesis 2, rather than Genesis 1. Now, the third issue, so you have uh, this issue on uh, human sexuality, you have here the role of women. Third issue is celebration of the Lord's Supper. Christianity's most solemn ritual is the reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples. And it represents the mystic communion between the Lord and his followers. A meeting in a private house to commemorate this event the Corinthians had turned the service into a riotous drinking party. So instead of a celebration of Christian unity, it had become another source of division. How did that play out? Well, wealthy participants would come early and eat all the choice food. That was before the working people arrived, 
or poor, relegating their social inferiors to hunger and public embarrassment. Rather than the Eucharist, uh, any of the divisions between rich and poor, uh, Paul is saying their behavior is only accentuating that. They eat it up. Then when their poor neighbors come for the Eucharist, you know, the divisions between rich and poor are heightened as they go in to celebrate the Eucharist. So the Eucharist is supposed to be a unifying thing, not a divisive thing. Paul contrasts this behavior with the tradition coming directly from Jesus himself. According to Jesus' sacramental distribution of bread and wine, he stresses that the ceremony is to be respectfully repeated in memory of Christ's death until he returns. So we do this in memory of him, in memory of me. So the allusion to the nearness of Jesus' reappearance reminds the Corinthians of the seriousness with which they must observe this Last Supper ceremony. Lord comes, as you're going to find out, that they've made this commemoration of his death and resurrection a moment or an event that divides and separates people from one another, rather than bring them together and unite them. Another issue is regarding the gifts of the Spirit. Use of that in chapter 12, verses 4 to 31. Now, led by the Holy Spirit, the early Christian community was composed of many peoples gifted with supernatural abilities. Just like any community, a variety of abilities and talents. He says some have the gift of prophecy, others were apostles, teachers, healers, miracle workers, or speakers in tongues. In Corinth, those individual gifts and rivalries among those possessing them were yet another cause of division. So one would brag that their abilities or talents or gifts were better or greater than their neighbors. The sense of rivalry who could be better than the other. Paul reminds us that one indivisible spirit grants all these different abilities. They all have the same source. And in describing it, he employs a favorite metaphor, which he compares the church to the human body. There's many different functioning parts. Arm, leg, eye, ear, etc. All different parts. But they have to work together, function together, in order for the body to live. Prosper. Each Christian gift is to be used to benefit the whole body, the church. So these gifts, rather than promoting uh, themselves, saying they're better than others, the gifts are to be used to benefit the whole body. How can my gift of talent help us as a community function better, live better? 
And then in chapter 13, we come to the hymn to love, probably the most famous passage in Paul. Now, Paul interrupts his advice on the use of spiritual gifts here. Show the Corinthians the best way of all. Chapter 13, 1 to 13. Now, listing those highly honored charismatic gifts, prophecy, knowledge, power, self-sacrifice, so all those highly honored charismatic gifts, he states that without love, these gifts are meaningless. Now, his description of love uses here the Greek word agape, meaning selfless love, selfless giving, and so stresses its human application. And what does that mean concretely? It says love is patient, kind, forgiving, keeps no record of offenses. His capacity for loyal devotion is infinite. There's no limit to its faith, its hope, and its endurance. <clears throat> and once given, love is never withdrawn. He says, whereas other spiritual gifts are only partial reflections of the divine reality, they're going to be obsolete in the perfect world to come, Supreme trio of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love, endures forever. Okay, we know that that's the famous passage that's used in many, many weddings. But it's, it has nothing to do with sexual love at all. It's, uh, it's geared for how we uh, use the talents and gifts that God has given us at the service of the community, and also the motivation is out of love. If uh, selfishness, etc., is involved in the use uh, of these gifts, he says they're meaningless. Another issue that he has to deal with is speaking in tongues. The word for that is glossolalia, G-L-O-S-S. Glossolalia. Although Paul gives top priority to love, he also acknowledges the value of other spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. But when he talks about uh, speaking in tongues, he's talking about rational communication. Ecstatic utterance, speaking in tongues of glossolalia, ecstatic utterance may be emotionally satisfying to a speaker, but it doesn't build up the congregation as do the gifts of teaching and prophecy. He says, uh, speaking in tongues has limited benefit. Maybe just for the person speaking in tongues. It doesn't build up the congregation in the same way that a teacher teaching does or a prophet during prophet, uh, prophecy. 
although he doesn't prohibit ecstatic utterance, Paul ranks it as the least useful spiritual gift. So all the, the people are involved in some charismatic movements, not all. But, uh, you know, I, I would hear some people coming home or in the morning when I celebrate Mass that had gone to a charismatic meeting. They were talking about how many people were speaking in tongues and were slain in the spirit. Well, you know, was their faith confirmed? Did they learn more about their faith? Understand it more? No. So, ever the matter was, it was for the emotional benefit of the person uh, who was uh, speaking in tongues or being slain in the spirit. Sometimes it's an emotional uh, situation. But Paul says, you know, not that that's a gift, but he says of all the gifts, it's probably the least uh, in the line of importance. Okay. Another issue that he deals is what we call the eschatological hope, which is the resurrection of the dead. Now, the last topic he deals with uh, in terms of the Corinthian community is his eschatological vision of the resurrection. He does that in chapter 15, the whole chapter pretty much, verses 1 to 57. And this topic is probably the most important theologically. Now, it seems that some Corinthians challenged Paul's teaching about the afterlife. One group of people may have questioned the necessity of a future bodily resurrection. Wondering whether there was any need for a future bodily resurrection because they believe that at baptism, the time at which they received the spirit, they had already achieved eternal life. So why do you need a resurrection? You achieved eternal life in baptism because you've received the spirit. And yet other groups of people that denied Paul's concept of resurrection because they shared the Greek philosophical view that a future existence is purely spiritual. And you go back to the Greek philosophers like Socrates, Plato, some of the mystery religions. Death occurs when the immortal soul escapes from the perishable body. It's not a question of a body rising from the soul. It's a question of the soul escaping the body dying. The soul doesn't need a body, they say, but it enters the invisible spirit realm. So those who believe in the soul's inherent immortality Paul's Hebrew belief in the physical body's resurrection was irrelevant. So you have some saying, you know, there's no need for a resurrection because we've already received the spirit of baptism. And those that said, you know, uh, 
the body is something corrupt, material, limited. Uh, the soul escapes from that body when you die. So that's uh, no no reason for a physical body resurrection, bodily resurrection. Now, Paul goes on the offensive, counteroffensive. Demonstrates that bodily resurrection is a reality. It reminds the Corinthians to remember that Jesus rose from the dead. So how can you say there's no resurrection from the dead when Jesus rose from the dead? Reserving our earliest tradition of Jesus's post-resurrection appearances, Paul notes that the risen Lord appeared to as many as 500 believers at once, as well as to Paul. He mentions that there in chapter 15. So Paul uses his opponent's denial of a resurrection against him. And he argues that if there's no resurrection, then Christ isn't raised. And our Christian hope is in vain. He says, well, if there's no resurrection, then you've got to deny that Christ rose and appeared to be. Which is part of our belief, it's part of the scriptures. Okay, you want to do away with that? To hold on to your belief, you've got to do away with the scriptures. And he doesn't trust in, trust in the Greek concept of innate human immortality. He reaffirms the Judeo-Christian faith in God's ability to raise the faithful departed. He says, yes, without Christ's resurrection, there is no afterlife. And if there's no afterlife, then we of all people, us Christians, are the most pitiable people. Not to look before it's open. Paul then invokes two archetypal figures to illustrate the means by which human death and its opposite eternal life into the world. And here again, he goes back to Genesis, those creation accounts. Paul declares that the first man, Adam, was God's first earthly son. Adam brought death to the human race. First man, Adam, was God's first earthly son, brought death to the human race. But Christ, who was Adam's heavenly counterpart, a new creation, brings life. Coming resurrection is universal. Christ died for all. As in Adam, all men die. So in Christ, all will be brought to life. So resurrection is something that's offered to all. The first product of the resurrection harvest, Christ will return to raise the obedient dead and defeat all enemies, including death itself. Christ is the first fruits, first the harvest. He's going to return to raise the dead to life, defeat all his enemies, including death. And then he brings up this notion that the Corinthians practiced the baptism of their dead. 
was possibly initiating them into the church. Paul says that this ritual presupposes the reality of the resurrection. Why are you baptizing? So they could enjoy eternal life, so they could be raised from the dead. Okay, and then the last thing is that Paul kind of answers the skeptic's demand to know what possible form the resurrection must take. What is this bodily resurrection? Louis admits that flesh and blood can never possess the immaterial kingdom of God. He retains the Jewish conviction that human beings cannot exist without some kind of body. Unity of body and soul, okay? One goes with the other. First thing he does is he uses analogies from the natural world. Demonstrates that life grows from buried seeds. And that existence takes different forms. He says, as heavenly bodies surpass earthly bodies in beauty, resurrection body will outshine the physical body. Be a body that's going to be more beautiful. His words, sown, which meant dead and buried, as a perishable thing, the body is raised imperishable. So it dies as a perishable thing. We take our last breath. And resurrection, it rises to be imperishable. It is a supernatural uh, transformation of our human essence. In the end, we have a material body that's also spirit. And then at the end, he says he unveils them a divine mystery. When the last trumpet sounds, he and other living Christians will be instantly transformed and clothed with an imperishable, immortal existence. It's going to come okay, at the end of our lives when we are resurrected. In this universal restoration, death itself will perish. It's going to be consumed in Christ's life-giving victory. Any questions on that? Okay. We mentioned you a point about the baptism so he was against baptizing the dead so what was his point yeah, he's no he was saying that one of his arguments is that corinthians if uh, a baby dies hasn't been baptized they baptize the baby even after the baby has died he was okay with that no but he just says well why are you baptizing the baby <coughs> if uh there is no resurrection. The main reason you're baptized is so that this child will be able to be raised from the dead and enjoy eternal life. So you're indicating what you are denying. 
professing your belief in a resurrection by baptizing your dead babies, when in fact you're saying there is no resurrection. Why? It's contradictory. So it's something like that. The Mormons that now have this practice of uh, baptizing you know, people of other faiths and everything like that. They, they look up genealogies and somehow or other they, I don't know how they baptize, but then they enroll those people in the book of life. But no, this argument is saying that why are you baptizing dead babies if there's no resurrection? They did. You're baptizing them because unless they're baptized, they will all dead. Okay, so it's just saying baby, baptism gives you the spirit. Right? So you don't need to wait to a resurrection of the dead to have the spirit. So he's not, he doesn't take a position either way, just saying, you know, it's kind of odd. Why, if you deny resurrection, why are you baptizing babies to a view for the resurrection? Thank you. All right. Uh, uh, yeah. You, in in uh, Corinthians, you mentioned he's talking about how women should not have official positions in the church. And just getting a little ahead of that, this Phoebe from Romans, is right. she like a deacon? Well, we, we don't know. She's the head of a church. It talks about uh, support her in administrative things. And she may be, we don't know, could be a business manager or whatever else. We don't know. Uh, you know they were supposed to have some commissions. There's some tantalizing uh, phrasing of the role of women all and as well as in some of the Gospels. Uh, she was very close to Paul, though, anyway. Oh, yeah. In fact, he tells uh, Prisca, Priscilla, and Aquila you know, to do all you can to help her in her job. He doesn't mention help some guy. But this married couple is supposed to help Phoebe because she's been entrusted with the care of the church there. Is that his thinking maybe developing a little, or we just don't know? So, well, it's kind of hard to nail down. It's, you know, he, uh, to say, even in terms of the uh, role of women and human sexuality, etc., you know, uh, he says, uh, the Corinthians said we shouldn't have any sexual contact, men or women. And he says, oh, no, if you're married, you know, this is, you know, something that you both uh, need to offer each other as a gift. So, you know, sometimes, you know, saying, it's coming from this guy? Then he, you know, he touts celibacy or single life. And yet again, he's, he's saying, you know, if you're married, stay that way. But, you know, if you're not married, you know, the best thing to do is don't get married because then you can prepare yourself for the coming reward. You know, that's, uh, again, you know, anybody who's married knows that trying to juggle all sorts of things, your job, sometimes you're married, you job and your family sometimes your roles in the church sometimes it's hard to balance all those things and, uh, you know Paul was saying you know that in view of the fact that uh, Christ is going to come back pretty soon uh, you know you should get distracted from you know this exam okay. yeah. thank you okay anybody in my zoom group any questions before we move on I have a question father okay Lisa. um in the 
the first part when you were talking about how the people were saying that um, they're kind of living an exalted life already right. prior to you know any any or prior to dying. Um, what verses were those from? So I could just look. Sure. Uh, so first Corinthians. During the break, let me just check this out. Uh, I know I have the references, but uh, rather than just hold everybody up, okay? Okay. Yes. He kept talking about the uh, Jesus coming back in his imminent return. Did he address to the people in the car? Okay, if Jesus were to come back and they're still alive, you know, do they? That they is. have to die in order to have eternal life? Or they just go right to heaven? Well, he really didn't talk about it. He, he didn't talk about it. It's only in Thessalonians. He uh, no, brings that up. Uh, and then in 2 Thessalonians also, which uh, we might get to this evening. Uh, he, you know, one of the things he had to come to grips with is that Thessalonians... They, uh, they were upset. They thought that all believers would still be alive when Christ came back. So Christ would take them with him to heaven. So it was a big concern about what about the people who have died? Christ comes back, turn it around to take them. So his thing is that don't worry. Christ is going to come back and first raise those who have died to join those who are living. All will be brought together in heaven. Uh, in Second Thessalonians, we'll see. Uh, the issue there is that uh, you know, they they say, "Well, Christ isn't going to come back as soon as you think." A lot of things have to happen beforehand. The Antichrist will have to appear, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So those of you who are sitting around not working, freeloading, living off the rest of us, get off your behinds. Same. You're thinking, "Okay, it's going to happen anytime, so I can give up my job and just sit and wait." Say no, no, it's not going to come as in. And then he lists certain things that are going to happen, which is like ironic. We'll we'll do we'll talk about that when we get to Second Thessalonians. You know, it's a different perspective there. Okay. Right now we'll do Second the Second Corinthians. One of the reasons that Paul's letters to the Corinthians is so fascinating is that they allow us to trace his relationship with. The congregation over a period of time. We have no other undisputed letters addressed 
to the same community at different times. And we do have two letters to Thessalonians, but uh, we'll see their problems with that. Paul's relationship with the Corinthians ebbs and flows in light of events which transpired after the writing of 1 Corinthians. By the time he came to write the second letter to the Corinthians, his tone had changed, while his tune hadn't. Now here again we have a problem, uh, just as we had with Galatians. Okay? Paul's tone changed even within his second letter, changed from the first to the second, and rather severely. In fact, there's a lot of scholars around who are convinced that 2 Corinthians doesn't represent a solitary letter that Paul sat down and wrote one day. But that's really a combination of two, maybe more letters that he wrote at different times for different occasions. And then when we look at Galatians, we saw the big change in the second part, chapters three and four as compared to one and two. We're gonna have the same thing here in Corinthians. According to this theory, someone else, maybe a member of the Corinthian congregation itself, later edited these letters with scissors and paste. And the upshot was one longer letter, possibly designed for a wider circulation among Paul's churches. Now, why do they say it's possibly more than one letter? Well, when you read a letter carefully, you're struck by the change of tone that begins with chapter 10 continues to the end. In chapters 1 to 9, Paul appears to be on very good terms appears to be on very good terms with his congregation. He's overflowing with joy for almost as much as he was for the Thessalonians. He does hint that their relationship has been a little bit stormy in the past. Okay, now he gives us some of the details. Sometime before, but after he wrote 1 Corinthians, he had paid a second visit to Carmel. The first visit was when he converted. Shortly after writing 1 Corinthians, he said he had left them, wrote back to them. Shortly after that, he paid them a second visit. For some undisclosed reason, over some undisclosed issue, Someone in the congregation publicly insulted him. And he 
took off in humiliation. This is his second visit to Corinth. First is when he came and converted them, and he left about 1 Corinthians, and he pays a second visit to them, and he's insulted and he leaves. Soon thereafter, he wrote a harsh letter that caused him great pain, in which he scolded the congregation severely for their conduct and their views. And he threatened to come back again and judge. But now, just before writing 2 Corinthians, or at least before the writing of chapters 1 to 9, the bearer of that painful letter that Paul wrote, was Titus, had returned and given him the good news the Corinthians had repented of their poor judgment and behavior. Titus, who's bringing this second Corinthians letter, he comes back to Paul and says, you know what? They did an about face. They repented of their poor judgment and behavior. In fact, they disciplined the person who caused Paul's pain. And they've committed themselves once more to Paul as their spiritual father in Christ. So that's the line so far. Uh, he goes to Corinth, converts the people, leaves, writes a letter, 1 Corinthians, and he goes and pays them a visit. A second visit there. He's insulted, departs in humiliation. <clears throat> Soon after, he writes a harsh letter, which was 2 Corinthians, which he scolds them for their behavior and their views. Now, prior to the writing of 2 Corinthians, or at least prior to the writing of chapters 1 to 9, okay, he finds out from Titus that They've repented their poor judgment, disciplined the person who caused Paul's pain, given themselves once more to Paul as their spiritual father in Christ. That's chapter 7, verses 5 to 12. Now, as you might expect, Paul's reaction was great appreciation, great news to hear. He says, he, meaning Titus, was consoled about you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced still more. Chapter 7, verse 7. Okay, now, thanks to this good news, Paul is brimming with joy over their renewed relationship. Despite the hardships he himself continues to experience. In chapter 7, verse 4, he says, I often boast about you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with consolation, overjoyed in all our affliction. Paul is writing this conciliatory letter to express his gratitude for their about face. And also he offers an explanation as to why he changed his travel plans. 
made him another visit. He said he had chosen not to visit them a third time, not out of fickleness, but simply to avoid causing anyone any more pain. Is that in chapter two, verses one to two? Okay, now, in chapters 10 to 13, everything seems to change or kind of revert. No longer is Paul joyful in this congregation that has returned to him. At this point, he's bitter. He's, he's angry that they've come to question his authority. It's a bad mouth his person. It's chapter 10, verses 2, and verses 10 and 11. And he threatens to come to them a third time in judgment. They remember the first time is their conversion. Second time is when he went there and got insulted. Now he's warning he's going to make a third visit, come in judgment, in which it will not be lenient. He warns the congregation against those who oppose him. Calls these newcomers in the congregation who uh, oppose him. He calls them sarcastically super apostles. Now he acknowledges that these so-called super apostles can perform miraculous deeds and spectacular signs, but he sees them as false apostles. Ministers of Satan. Prey on the minds of the Corinthians. Will lead them to all sorts of disorder and disobedience. Newcomers, so-called super apostles, okay, they can do things that'll wow and dazzle the people. He says they're really false apostles, ministers of Satan. Pray on the minds of Corinthians. Now, when you see that, you say to yourself, is it possible that Paul could gush with joy over his congregation and at the same time threaten fierce retribution against it? How can for nine chapters go on, just you know, so grateful and happy, and then all of a sudden, you know, turn on the same congregation? Is it possible? Yeah, but not likely. So how do we explain this change of tone? Well, in chapters 10 to 13, Paul threatens to make a third visit in judgment against the congregation. Whereas in chapters 1 to 9, he indicates he had canceled his visit because he didn't want to cause further pain. He says then chapters 1 to 9, but then in 10 to 13, he's going to come in judgment. Indeed, he intimates there was no longer any need to make that visit. That's in the first part of the letter. The congregation received his angry and pointed letter and had its desired effect. They came to grieve over how they mistreated him. They've now returned to his good graces. 
Now, based on the differences between the two parts of the letter, many scholars believe that chapters 10 to 13 represent a portion of that painful letter that he mentions in chapter 2, verse 4. And the letter was written after Paul's public humiliation and before his reconciliation with the Corinthians. Reconciliation he gratefully discussed in chapters 1 to 9. So the thing that uh, chapters 10 to 13 represents the painful letter he sent to the Corinthians. Uh, chapters 1 to 9 are, you know, the uh, reconciliation took place. They uh, did an about face and disciplined the person who uh, had offended Paul, and they reaffirmed their allegiance and commitment to gospel that Paul had given him. Now, if that's the case, then a later editor has combined the two letters by eliminating the closing of one of them. In other words, the thankful or conciliatory letter of chapters 1 to 9. So, in that letter, 1 to 9, there's no real closing. And in the painful letter of chapters 10 to 13, there's no opening prescript. So we figured that the editor of this letter, the one that amended it, created one longer letter that embodies the ebb and flow of Paul's relationship with the Corinthians over a relatively long period of time. Now, again, You know, if you just listen to this, you will see what kind of solution they've come up with. There's a number of steps to try to make sense of this letter. First of all, you know, Paul's first visit. That's when Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy first arrived in Corinth, set up shop, preached the gospel and a number of converts, and provided them with some rudimentary instruction or leading for other areas right for mission. So... And, you know, try to say, okay, what was going on? Okay. Paul makes that first visit there. The second thing is, Paul evidently wrote a letter to the Corinthians that has been lost. Okay, he refers to it in 1 Corinthians 5 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral men. Not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy and robbers or idolaters who are needing to go out of the world. Rather, I to you to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who is guilty of immorality or greed, who is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or robber. Not even to eat with such a one. What have I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? So now those inside the church whom we were to judge, God judges those outside. Try out the wicked person from among you. So he mentions here he wrote them a letter. So you have them going to the community, converting them. He writes a letter addressing some issues that had arisen. In the third stage, he writes the first letter. Excuse me, the Corinthians write their first letter to Paul. Paul writing to them. He goes on his first visit. He writes a letter to the Corinthians, which seems to have been lost. Corinthians write to him. Some of the Corinthians, either in response to Paul's first letter or independently of it, wrote to Paul to inquire further about ethical matters. For example, about whether Christians should have sex with their spouses. 
went through that. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse one. Okay, the fourth step would be Paul's second letter, which is our first letter to the Corinthians. Paul's first letter is the one he says he wrote, but we don't have. Okay, now this fourth step, Paul's second letter, first Corinthians, in response to the Corinthians questions, in a reaction to information that he received from Chloe's people, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. And he announced his plans to travel through Macedonia to Corinth, where he hoped to spend the winter. He apparently sent the letter back with Stephanus and his two companions, who were members of the Corinthian church. Okay, step five, Paul's second visit, one where he gets insulted. He doesn't want to make another painful visit. This suggests that his most recent visit has been painful. It says in 2 Corinthians, he doesn't want to make another visit after the painful one. It appears then that after the writing of 1 Corinthians, Paul fulfilled his promise to come to Corinth for a second time, but he wasn't well received. So then the congregation did something to cause him pain, and possibly public humiliation. He left uttering die threats he would return in judgment against them. Step six, the arrival of the super apostles. Either prior to Paul's departure or soon after, other apostles of Christ arrived in town claiming to be true spokespersons of the gospel. These so-called super apostles were of Jewish ancestry. They appeared to people who the that Paul found most repugnant, namely the notion that life in Christ was a raving, exalted, glorified existence. That's what these super apostles are spreading around. That you know they're already living in an uh, exalted existence because Christ has died and because they've been baptized. Clearly, Paul and these super apostles didn't see eye to eye. At some point, the attacks became personal. Super apostles evidently maligned Paul for his clear lack of power and charismatic presence. Paul, in turn, claimed that they were ministers of Satan rather than apostles of Christ. He argued that the gospel message would be totally compromised if the Corinthians accepted the claims of his opponents. You have step seven. Paul's third letter, which is this painful letter, partly embodied in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. There is a second that Paul wrote a letter in which he went on the attack against the super apostles. He continued to insist that the life of the believer is not the glorified, exalted existence that Christ practically endured. This is an age of evil and suffering. God and Satan is still active and in control. Those who boast in their power and wisdom don't understand that the end hasn't yet come, that this is an age of weakness in which God's wisdom appears foolish. Apostles in particular suffer in this age since they are the chief opponents of the cosmic powers of evil who are in charge. Even though the apostles may have had a glimpse of the glory to come, 
they're still subject to pain and suffering, which keeps them from boasting of their own merits and forces them to rely totally on the grace of God for what they can The super apostles are not really apostles at all, Paul says. And then he used the letter to attack the person who had publicly humiliated him, to warn the congregation to deal with him prior to his arrival in judgment. Paul himself wouldn't be lenient when he came. Okay, so part of that letter in which he's angry and writing, the part that deals with the super apostles is found in what is now 2 Corinthians chapters 10 to 13. So the letter was sent with Paul's companion, Titus, and it seems to have this desired effect. Corinthians punished the one who had insulted Paul, insulted Paul, he repented of the pain they had caused him, and returned to his fold. Paul, in the meantime, canceled his plan to make another visit to the congregation. Now you have the eighth and final step, Paul's fourth letter, conciliatory letter. It's the one we find in 2 Corinthians chapters 1 to 9. So after a good Titus, Paul wrote a friendly letter to express his pleasure, the Corinthians' change of heart. He also wanted to explain why he canceled uh, his plan to make another visit. He wanted to assure them he wasn't simply being fickle, making and then revising his plan. Part of his letter there is found in 2 Corinthians 1 to 9. And the two letters to the Corinthians. Right? First Corinthians is no problem. Second Corinthians is where we find out, you know, this is kind of a Jekyll and Hyde sort of thing, similar to Galatians. Uh, it's easy to see that the second part, chapters 10 to 13, in which he's angry, etc., is actually written before what we have now in the first part of Second Corinthians. He wrote it, sent it to Titus. Titus comes back and says, you know what? scene is totally different now. So Paul writes, you know, uh, the first part of 2 Corinthians, uh, you know, happy that things have turned out for the good. I'm not going to come to you because, you know, I don't want to cause more trouble or pain among you, etc. So he's just happy that they've uh, disciplined the person who caused them the trouble. They've returned to the fold. So it's easy to see, you know, it makes more sense that chapters 1 to 9 are later than chapters 10 to 13. Uh, an editor somehow or other, you know, edited two letters, maybe even more, uh, and then put them together. And now they don't really make logical sense. But if you inverted the order of them, just like Galatians, the second part of the letter really comes first. Okay? And it makes a lot of sense. It makes sense for somebody to be angry and then happy that things have changed for the better. And to say, oh, things are great, and then turn around and, you know, go for the juggler. You know, say in both Galatians and here, you have know, the same thing. So uh, that's 
again, as Scott was looking at it and saying, you know, this is the only way we can really make sense of this situation. See it in this light. Some editors somehow or other, in the cutting and pasting bit, you know, put the wrong thing in the wrong place or didn't understand what was going on with Paul and the Corinthians. Okay, so after someone edited the two, or maybe three or four or five letters into one book that we now call Second Corinthians, we lose sight of Paul's relationship with this congregation. So we don't hear about them anymore. So we really don't know whether all the problems were solved or whether there were more stormy incidents. And we're really not quite sure whether the Corinthians decided to adopt, adopt Paul's point of view and reject the perspectives brought in by those others from the outside of super apostles. Okay. Paul's basic message is conveyed in other letters also. For example, rather than simply attacking the super apostles on their own terms, by arguing that he could do better miracles than they could, Paul dismisses the very grounds for considering themselves apostles. Apostles are those that had, Jesus said, you know, they would face suffering and persecution, etc. These apostles go around in an exalted, you know, preach about them being in an exalted state. Well, apostles are the victims of suffering, persecution, and rejection. So these aren't really legitimate apostles. They're not facing their, their share of persecution. Uh, it's reminiscent of the way Paul treated the leaders of the divisive factions in 1 Corinthians when he denies that earthly wisdom and power are signs of the divine. He talks about God uses his weakness you know, to show his glory. For him, the credentials of an apostle are not the glorious acts of exaltation and splendor. The true apostles will suffer much as Christ himself suffered. Again, remind him the end hasn't come. Anybody who relies on spectacular acts of power must be suspect, colluding with the cosmic forces that are in charge of this age, namely Satan and his vile servants. And that explains why Paul goes to such great lengths to boast in his weakness in this letter, chapter 12, verse 5. He details all the ways he has suffered as Christ's apostle. Most of that in chapter 11, verses 17 to 33. Now, it may not seem much like much to boast about, getting beaten up regularly, living in constant danger and fear of his life. But for Paul, these are signs that he is the true apostle of Christ. Christ himself suffered the ignominious fate of crucifixion. So again, he's the one that's following the steps of his Messiah. These other apostles that are to razzle-dazzle and spectacular stuff, no, that's not the role of an apostle. Paul claims that God has kept him weak so that he would be unable to boast about any work that he himself has performed. He says... God kept him weak so that he couldn't brag about what he was doing. So it's anything good that comes of his ministry 
has necessarily been performed by God. Which is that in chapter 12, verses 6 to 10. But he said, you can't say the same thing about these super apostles. You're not bragging about their weakness, suffering that they've endured. Now, for reasons unknown, the Corinthians came to agree with Paul on the fact that believers are not yet glorified with Christ, but live in a world of sin and evil, and that they have to contend with forces greater than themselves until the end comes and Christ's followers are raised into immortal bodies to be exalted with him. So somehow they come to agree, yeah, okay, we're not yet glorified. We live in a world of sin, evil, and with forces greater than themselves. And this is going to be until the end comes. Christ's followers are raised into immortal bodies, be exalted with him. That's when the exaltation takes place. Christ comes back to raise us. Now, what changed their minds? We're not quite sure. We're not sure whether Paul or his representative Titus was. Uh, very persuasive, getting them to uh, come back on track, or whether those super apostles were somehow discredited. Yeah, sure. What we do know is that after their reconciliation, Paul wrote another letter, which along with his gratitude for the church's change of heart, he expressed in somewhat more subdued fashion it's basically apocalyptic view of life in this world. So the reconciliation, angry in the second part, reconciliation. Chronologically it follows, but it's the first part of the letter. He's grateful for the change of heart. He begins the letter, chapters one to nine, by stressing his own suffering and the grace of God that was manifest through that suffering. As I've repeated a number of times, that's to some extent the message of the entire epistle. The gospel of Christ is an invaluable treasure. Even though it hasn't been fully manifested in this age of pain and suffering. The body has not yet been glorified. Believers are not yet exalted. As a result, he says, we have this treasure in earthen or clay jars. Chapter 4, verse 7. Believers themselves are lowly. And their bodies are of little worth. But the gospel message that they proclaim is a treasure for the ages. We have this treasure in earthen jars. Bodies of lowly worth. The message we carry is a treasure for the ages. In the body, the believer groans, longing to be clothed with a heavenly glorified body. So this present age is one of suffering, 
but also longing for a better age to come. And with this longing comes the assurance that in the future, the hope for glory will become a reality. Sherman said that in the future, that hope for glory will become a reality. Those who have been reconciled to God through Christ. It's chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. So he says, until then, life in this world is characterized by affliction and hardship. Suffering of the present age is not enough to tarnish the hope of the true believer. He says, this momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. And the same thing, and we're not living in this exalted uh, state where we don't deal with suffering or pain or sin or we live in this world. And a sign of our his uh, credentials as a true apostle is that you know, he himself bears his share of suffering and pain and weakness in uh, preaching the gospel. Okay. Any questions? I'm going to give you a break, and then we'll come back and do the letter to the Romans. Any questions? You know, again, I keep going over sometimes the same things, too. Tell you these. This is the main theme, the message. Okay, it's fighting against people who think they're already living the life of the resurrection. It's not true. We uh, we've been baptized. We received the gift of the Spirit, but that gift doesn't come to full fruition until after we raise from the dead. We have the seeds of eternal life in us through baptism. That seed of eternal life is nourished when we receive the Eucharist, but you know we. We haven't received the full benefits of uh, our faith until we die and raised from the dead. The Romans will have a totally different uh, thing. We'll talk about faith here. And uh, the equality of Jews and Gentiles. Okay, so we'll give you a break until half past or so.
que hay allá de comer. Mira por ti. <risa> La galleta. Tostadas. Con frijoles.
Hey, Father. Yeah. This is Chris. Did yes. you hear my, I sent a note to you today. You may not have seen it about a reading you uh, gave us in Intro to New Testament. It was about a woman who went to a bunch of church services back in, I think it was the Middle Ages. Trying to remember. Uh, it was a great hand. I have it somewhere. It's just in my piles of class notes. It was, uh, she went to a, it, it just showed how the church services were very ornate and wonderful, but they were still very close to what we currently have. I'm trying to remember the reading. I thought it was a woman who did this, and she went to like five different services, or... Yeah. I, was, don't, I don't recall it now, I just... Uh, yeah, did I, okay. Did I just read it or hand it out to you? You hand it out to us. I, I, I'm going to dig for it. I, it's just, I, I'm doing a little section in my second chapter, my thesis on Middle East, um, uh, medieval ages, and I was like, oh, that would have been great to use part of that. I just can't remember what it was. And you, I sure it wasn't, you sure it wasn't literary class or? Uh, I'm almost positive it's your class, but yeah, maybe it was liturgy. That would make sense, right? It sounds like, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like liturgy. Yeah, maybe you're right. These, I don't want to say these classes all bled together over the years, but. <laughs> <laughs> we all sound the same. <laughs> Uh, Chris, I think you might be talking about Egeria from. Uh, yeah, that sounds right. That would be liturgy, yeah. 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 She, yeah. Went around, she went around. In fact, we have. Her. What is it? Yeah, so. That's what it is. I have it, Commander. Yeah, send me a copy of it. Father Bruno's being a. Mr. He's editing my. I didn't know editing meant making things longer, but it's certainly getting longer this chapter. <laughs> I'm looking at you. I thought. I know. I know. I have it. I'm sure I do. Too. I I looked at the wrong folder. I was looking at the New Testament, going, "Well, I don't see it there." But somehow I had one of our uh, one of our midterm questions too, if I remember correctly. That was right. It was, wasn't it? Along with. Uh, the order of people getting naked for baptism. Correct. <laughs> Which I never could really figure out the answer to. <laughs> I, I, I skipped that one. I chose, I chose another still on his if you go into his that's, uh, that's i'll go and look and see if it's there it was posted there i know yeah, that's that. that's where i went i looked for, for in, in new testament class they the same thing i'll go look right now now that you say it's a jury of course my brain just said so. yeah. my course is it was an intro to liturgy Yes. Uh, files. Oh, look at that. Ambrose. It's there. I'll see. It's got to be. There's a thousand things here. What was it called, though? Well, it was in the beginning. Oh, I found it. Yeah. You got it? The last one. Yep. 
there it is. Good call. I sure hope he has reference material in here. Um, thank you, George. No problem. <coughs> oh, that's going to be helpful. Lisa, uh, just a little checking. I have a couple of references for you. Okay. Okay. One would be pretty much all of Chapter 15, when he's countering, uh, especially near the end. He talks in verse 51 line. be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about between uh, you and I, uh, the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. But this perishable nature must put on an imperishable one. This mortal nature must put on immortality. The perishable puts on the imperishable. The mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death swallowed up in victory. So he's saying it's only in then, when we die, that we receive what is imperishable. And then also, uh, in chapter 1, 18 to 25, where to the cross is folly for those who are perishing, to us who are being saved is the power of God. I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, cleverness, cleverness of the clever I will thwart. Where is the wise man? Is it? 
in that, in that passage. Okay, so what he's doing there is uh, there's argumentation saying that what's imperishable and to be exalted only is going to happen at the time we die. All these other people are claiming, you know, that uh, they've already entered the promised land in a sense. There's no more suffering or pain. All is full of, uh, you know, just uh, happiness and joy. And Paul keeps saying, no, no. If we're to follow Christ, we follow his way of suffering. Okay, that wasn't removed until after his death and his resurrection. We haven't died and been raised yet. But that's to come. Okay. Okay. Uh, rock. It's just so weird that they thought that they were already beyond this. Like they, they somehow could live this exalted life. I mean, were these like maybe like the wealthy people that thought they just kind of just well, went on or something? Like, I don't know. These would have to be certainly the uh, probably more educated, etc. cetera. Uh, and in some cases, maybe wealthy. But uh, they had this idea that you know, we say in baptism, we died with Christ and rose with him. Okay. So that, that's part of, uh, you know, our liturgy and part of Paul's uh, theology is baptism, we die and rise with Christ. But that rising with Christ is only going to take place at, at our death. We put, to, we put to death sin and the power of evil over us. You know, as best we can in this life, we know it's not over once and for all because that's why we have the sacrament of reconciliation. You know, that even though you know Christ has given us the power to die to sin, we don't always do that in this life. There's temptation out there, there's evil people trying to influence us, etc. That's a struggle, it's a temptation all through life. That's only going to end when we die. Hopefully, at that point, we are reconciled with God. So that we will share, then he will raise us as he had been raised from the dead. Okay. Well, I can almost see like the, the lifestyle that they entered into once they became a religious group was probably a whole lot better than the lifestyle they had. And that might have given them the feeling of that they were saved. Yeah, or it's an easy answer to think that, uh, you know, you're not going to have to deal with suffering and pain, etc. You have a lot of cults. You know, that's, uh, you know, uh, you know, involved in that they're, they're in ecstasy or all of that. It's like, you know, they live in community, et cetera. You know, they have to worry about paying bills and life is fun, et cetera. But uh, they don't realize they're being controlled, being taken, like Scientology and all of that. It's hard. I mean, not too many people today running around claiming that but uh, this is something that you know, was, was part of the, the culture and the life back then they had all sorts of things mystery religions monotheistic religions monotheistic things like that okay letter to the Romans it's probably
probably one of the most important of Paul's letters. And the thing that's interesting about this letter is that it's the only letter Paul wrote to a church that he himself didn't establish. Now, we know most of the letters he wrote, he went to that area, made converts, left, and then wrote back, you know, either to encourage them or to straighten them out on certain issues or problems that arisen. So he didn't establish this church in Rome. And it's the only letter that doesn't explicitly try to solve the church's problems. So why then did Paul write such a letter? What was his purpose? Doing something that's out of character for him. Well, essentially, Paul wanted to show the Christians at Rome that his gospel message was on the up and up. Why does he want them to understand that? Well, he was hoping to convince them to provide some support, both moral and financial, for a mission trip he planned to take to Spain. He's hoping to reach, go as far west as Spain. He wanted to make a journey there to bring the gospel. He was hoping for their moral and financial support. But to make his case convincing, Paul had to explain carefully his understanding of the gospel of God. A gospel which brings salvation to all people, whether they're Jew or Gentile. Paul understands this act of salvation in a variety of ways. We'll also take a look at Paul's understanding of the relationship of God to the Jews and of Jews and Gentiles to each other. The relationship of God to the Jews and also Jews and Gentiles to each other. Now, we have to admit that there's no New Testament book that's proven to be more influential in the history of Christian thought and Paul's letter to the Romans. It was accorded primary place in the canon as the longest of Paul's epistles. You know, at the end of the fourth century, this letter was instrumental in the conversion of St. Augustine. His own writings, based largely on his understanding of Romans, shaped the thinking of theologians down through the Middle Ages. Shaped the thinking of someone like Augustine. It also stood at the center of the debates between Protestants and Catholics during the 16th century Reformation. Protestant leaders back then, such as Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, and John Calvin, saw this letter as the clearest exposition of Christian doctrine in the writings of the apostles. Now, as I said, uh, this letter is written to a congregation that Paul himself did not establish. 
in a city that he'd never visited. Those other letters were written to deal with problems that had risen among those whom he had converted to faith in Christ. But that's not the case here. And even more striking, Paul doesn't appear to be uh, writing to resolve problems that he heard about within the Roman church. He's not reacting to problems or troubles that he hears the church of Rome has undergone. The issues he does discuss appear to relate instead to his own preaching of the Christian gospel. That really encompasses chapters 1 through 11. Even his exhortations in chapters 12 to 15 are general in nature and not explicitly directed to problems specific to the Christians in Rome. <clears throat> Words of encouragement and things that he could say to any community. <clears throat> Never indicates that he's learned of their struggles or that he's writing to convey his advice. Seems he just simply wants to expound some of his views and explain why he holds them. Now we have some clues about Paul's motivation in writing this letter at the beginning of it and at the end of it. In the beginning, he states that he's eager to visit the church to share his gospel with them. Chapter 1, verses 10 to 15. You might think that Paul is preparing the Romans for a visit, giving them advance notice about what he's up to. But at the end of the letter, a fuller agenda becomes more evident. In the closing of his letter, Paul indicates that he has completed the work that he has to do where he is, possibly Achaia, maybe in Corinth. So he's, he's finishing his work, he's wrapping up there. Might possibly Corinth, so because the person carrying the letter is Phoebe, a deacon in the church at Cancraea, which was a nearby port of Corinth. He's wrapping up his work there in Corinth, probably. He says it's eager to extend his mission into the Western region, specifically Spain. And he wants to visit Rome on the way. Now, Paul is interested more than simply meeting with the Christians in Rome. He wants them to provide support, moral and financial, for his westward mission to Spain. And possibly he might like to use Rome as the base of his operations to those regions beyond. The question is, why would he need to provide such a lengthy exposition of his views in order to get their support in Rome? Didn't they already know who he is? The apostles of the Gentiles. And wouldn't they readily undertake to provide him with whatever assistance he needed?
Now, the lengthy discourse that Paul engages in uh, suggests either the Romans have only a dim knowledge of who he is, or even more likely, they heard a great deal about him. And then what they heard made them suspicious. If that's the case, or at least if Paul believes that's the case, then presumably their suspicions would relate to the issues that Paul addresses throughout his letter. And what were these issues? Whether Jews and Gentiles can really be thought of as equal before God. And if they can be thought as equal before God, A, has God forsaken his promise that the Jews would be a special people? They're both equal. And has God abandoned his promise that the Jews be a special people? And the second thing is, whether Paul's law-free gospel for the Gentiles leads to lawless and immoral behavior. Again, that's something that cropped up, remember, letters to the Galatians. So the big issues are, are Jews and Gentiles equal before God? If that's the case, has God forsaken his promise that the Jews would be his special people? They're on the same footing as the Gentiles. Are they a special people anymore? And then whether for the Gentiles, whether the law-free gospel will lead to lawless and immoral behavior. Now, the tone and style of this letter support the view that Paul wrote it to explain himself to a congregation whose assistance he was eager to receive. He really wants their backing and support. Throughout this letter to the Romans, Paul constantly has to defend himself and to justify his views by making careful and reasoned arguments. I'll give you references to where he has to make those arguments. Chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 1 and verse 15. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, Paul makes his defense in a neatly crafted way. He uses a rhetorical style known as the diatribe. Now, if you've studied rhetoric, etc., it involved advancing an argument by stating oh, yeah. a thesis. Yeah, we studied rhetoric. Having an imaginary opponent raise possible objections to it. And then providing answers to these objections. It's almost like prepping for a presidential debate. And you ask somebody, you know, challenge you answering questions. Okay? Here in this case, the person who raised decided what the question is. There's you know, somebody imaginary, you know object to it, and then he answers the question. Since the author both asks and answers the question, the diatribe is effectively, is remarkably effective in showing that he knows what he's talking about, and that he's always right. You know, if you can always frame the question, 
you're in control. So by using this style, Paul effectively counters arguments that others have made against his teachings. So for instance, he may go in and just, you know, very suspicious audience like, no, I guess I know people are wondering why I do this. Yeah, yeah, we have that in mind. So you already got to jump on people. You already said, I know what you're thinking. Why would I do this? Or why would I say that? This is what the diatribe is. In other words, it's uh, uh, you know, steering the, uh, the issue of the debate in a way that you can handle. Now, uh, employing the style, he effectively counters arguments others have made against his teachings. Now, Paul's travel plans include not only the trip through Rome to Spain, but also an earlier jaunt to Jerusalem. And Paul has collected funds for the poor Christians of Judea, from his Gentile converts, Macedonia and Achaia. Now, if you remember back in the Council of Jerusalem, uh, you know, they encouraged Paul to go out and teach the Gentiles. Okay, one of the things they told him to keep in mind, that he was supposed to take up collections for the poor and suffering around Jerusalem. So here he's doing this. Okay, he's collected money for the poor Christians of Judea. And he's collected from Gentiles. Gentiles have given money to give to support the Jews back in Jerusalem. And uh, he appears uneasy about his upcoming trip to deliver this collection. He's fearful of unbelievers in Judea, presumably Jews, that didn't take kindly to his faith in Jesus. He also apprehends as his reception by the saints, presumably Jewish Christians, who haven't really warmed up to his law-free gospel to the Gentiles. He's not sure what kind of reception. Either, uh, you know, uh, those Jews that, you know, uh, certainly don't accept Jesus as Messiah, and then also Jewish Christians who aren't quite sure about his outreach to Gentiles. So this letter to the Romans seems to be directed to the situation Paul expects to find when he addresses it in Rome. He wants to use this church as his base of operations and knows or thinks that he has some opposition there. So he writes a letter to persuade this congregation of the truth of his version of the gospel. What is this version of the gospel? It insists that Jews and Christians are on equal footing before God. Both are equally alienated from God. Both can be made right with God only through Christ's death and resurrection. The gospel is what? Jews and Christians are on equal footing before God? In what sense? They're both equally alienated from God. Both can be made right with God only through Christ's death and resurrection. Furthermore, the salvation that is offered in Christ comes to people apart from adherence to the Jewish law. The salvation that Christ offers comes to people not through observance of the Jewish law, okay. so it goes back to faith, Christ's death and resurrection. 
So uh, the law itself bears witness to this faith as the only means of salvation. In fact, Christ is the goal of this law. And he also makes the point that the gospel shows that God has not gone back on his promises to the Jews. And he has not rejected them as his people. In Christ, all the promises of God have come to fruition. And then he says the Romans can rest assured that this gospel doesn't lead to moral laxity. He points to himself. He says, I'm not a moral reprobate. And he does urge his converts to engage in wild and lawless activities. That's going to be the heart of this letter now. This idea that Jew and Gentile are on equal footing. Why? Because both alienated from God and they both can be reconciled, reconciled to God in the same way. Not through following the law, but through Christ's death and resurrection. And he says Christ hasn't gone back. God hasn't gone back in his promises to the Jewish people. He hasn't rejected them. In fact, it's in Christ that all the promises of God to the Jews come to fulfillment. And then points out that this law-free gospel doesn't lead to moral laxity. All right. Now, Paul begins his letter in his usual way, with the prescript naming and describing himself and those whom he's writing to. And he anticipates the central concern of his letter, the meaning of his gospel. As usual, the prescript is followed by thanksgiving to God for this congregation, in which he announces his plans to visit them in order to share his gospel with them. And then he gives a brief delineation of his gospel in two verses that scholars have long recognized as setting out the theme of his letter. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. And is written, one who is righteous will live by faith. Now it's chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Let's take those each of those things apart. Because I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul may be writing to the Romans to provide a relatively full and accurate account of the gospel message that he proclaims. Perhaps in light of the partial and accurate report that he suspects they have already heard. He begins by assuring them that his message brings him no shame. He's proud to tell the truth of the message of God. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says, it is the power of God for salvation. Paul's gospel is God's powerful means of salvation. The gospel Paul preached represents God's powerful act of salvation for the world. The gospel Paul preaches is the way that God has chosen to save those who are headed for destruction.
implication is, implication is clear. Apart from this gospel, there would be no salvation. The next section of that phrase is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. So this salvation comes to those who have faith. For Paul, faith or believing refers to a trusting acceptance of God's act of salvation. You're saved by accepting God's act of salvation, the death and resurrection of Christ. It doesn't refer simply to intellectual assent, but implies a wholehearted conviction and commitment. So Paul is going to insist the person is put into a right relationship with God, not by adhering to the decrees of the Jewish law, but by trusting God's act of salvation. That means by believing in Christ's death and resurrection. So the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. And the next thing is salvation comes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. My Greek Paul simply means Gentile since it's in opposition to Jew and Gentile. Jew and Greek, it's really Jew and Gentile. So the salvation that's given in the gospel, which you can be made right with God through believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus, comes to both Jews and Gentiles. Jews received it first. Since God is the God of the Jews, who sent his son to the Jewish people, fulfill the Jewish scriptures. So the message of salvation is offered first to the Jews. It's God sent his son to the Jewish people to fulfill the Jewish scriptures that he would send the Messiah. But it also comes to the Gentiles. In fact, one of Paul's important points throughout this whole letter is that despite the advantages of the Jews, what advantages they have? They have the scriptures, which the promises of God are given. Despite the fact that they have this advantage, having the scriptures, Jew and Gentile are on equal footing before God. They say, how are they on equal footing? They're both sinners. They both sin before God. And therefore, they both share weaknesses of sinners. But all can be made right with God only by faith in Christ. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, you're made right with God by faith in him and his death and resurrection. Not through following the law or worshiping idols, through faith in Christ. Okay, and then Paul says, in this gospel is revealed the righteousness of God. Now, is it right that God should not give preference to his own people? 
Paul's gospel insists that God is unequivocally right in the way he brings about salvation. Namely, that he's righteous in the way that he makes all people, Jew and Gentile, right with himself. Bottom line is that God has not gone back on his promises. He hasn't rejected his people, the Jews. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the fulfillment of those promises. Faith in him is given first to Jews, and then through them to the entire world. there. The scriptures proclaim the gospel. The so book claims that God has been perfectly fair and consistent or righteous in his treatment of the Jews and of all people. It's fair, consistent in his treatment of the Jews and of all people because the scriptures themselves teach that salvation is based completely on faith rather than doing the works prescribed in the Jewish law. So the scriptures say that salvation is based completely on faith, not on doing the works of the law. And to back, and back it up, he quotes the prophet Habakkuk. That Pope, in that quote, Paul emphasizes that a right standing before God, a standing that provides life, comes only through faith. Habakkuk says, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Paraphrase that by saying, the one who is made right with God through faith will find life. Paul wants to emphasize his gospel message is not something that he has made up himself. Now, if you think back to the letter to the Galatians, Paul claimed there to have received the gospel message through a revelation from God. He didn't receive it from the other apostles. And we're going to see in Romans, as we saw in Galatians, he also thinks that it is rooted in the Jewish scriptures. measure, the letters of the Romans is an extended argument that Paul's gospel of salvation, namely his message of how a person, Jew or Greek, comes into a right standing for God, how the gospel derives from these sacred books. argument? How does, how does it flow? Well, the first thing is the human dilemma. What's the human dilemma? All people stand condemned before God. That's our problem. Chapters 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. He's going to deal with that. Paul's gospel follows a 
bad news, good news scheme. It's designed to show his reader how desperate the situation is for all people, Gentiles and Jews alike. He says, Gentiles have abandoned their knowledge of the one true God to worship idols, resulting in wild and rampant immorality. In other words, how, how are they abandoning their worship of God? Well, he says, Gentile can know through God's creation. Okay. That's how they come to know God. It's chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Excuse me, 18 to 32. Mm-hmm. That's the Jews, not the Jews, the Gentiles fail because they have an opportunity to believe in one true God through the world he created. They've reverted to immorality and to worshiping idols. And he says Jews are no better. Because even though they have the law and the sign of circumcision, they don't practice the law. So they stand condemned. Chapter 2, verse 1. Verse 29. Well, both Jews and Gentiles, okay, they've abandoned uh, God through sin against the law or, you know, reverting to worshiping idols and practicing immorality. All people, Jews and Gentiles, have sinned against God. Now, this view that Jew and Gentile are equally condemned before God does not at all represent a rejection of Judaism. Because according to Paul, it's the teaching of the Jewish scriptures themselves. Chapter 3, verses 10 to 20. Okay, so that's the human dilemma. Everybody's on equal footing, so we all stand condemned before God. Now, what's the divine solution to this human dilemma? Salvation through Christ's death. Chapter 3, verse 21 to 31. As I've mentioned before, Paul brings up again, the Jewish law gives the knowledge of sin, but not the solution to sin. It makes you aware of how you failed, but it doesn't help you to avoid sin. The solution comes in the fulfillment of this law in the death of Jesus. It's a sacrifice for the sins of others to be received through faith. Performing the works of the Jewish law doesn't contribute to the salvation through faith. So Jews have no grounds for boasting of a special standing before God. Jews and Gentiles are on equal footing. All are made right with God through faith in the death of Jesus. So the dilemma is all stand condemned before God. How does God undo that condemnation? Well, through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, not through practicing works. And Paul goes on to say, the gospel message is rooted in the scriptures. 
goes through that in chapter 4, verse 1 to 25. And again, it's something we've done before, done before. The father of the Jews, Abraham himself, shows that a person is made right with God through faith rather than by doing works of the law. So Abraham was justified or made right with God in one way. By trusting in God's promise to leave his land, etc., God would make him the father of great people. He trusted in God's promise before he was given the sign of circumcision, which is a work of the law. He was made right with God through his faith in God's promises, not through you know, Jewish law such as circumcision. And his true descendants, the true descendants of Abraham, was made right with God because of his trust in God's promises, his faith in God. His true descendants are those who continue to trust in God and in the fulfillment of his promises, which has now occurred in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And those who trust in God and the fulfillment of his promises seen in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Those are the true descendants of Abraham. Another point, Christ's death and resurrection bring freedom from the powers opposed to God. Chapter 5, Verse 1 to chapter 839. Well, it says, those who believe in Christ have been made right with God. And as a result of being made right with God, they'll be saved from the wrath of God that's going to come upon this world. Those who have been right with God, faith in Jesus and his resurrection, death and resurrection, they're going to be spared from the wrath of God that's coming. They'll also be delivered from the reign of God's mortal enemy, death. No, when he says death, is he talking about spiritual death or physical death? Does it matter? Regarding uh, delivered from the reign of God's enemy, death. Okay. But he's talking about uh, death, meaning our relationship with God. Right, so it's spiritual. Spiritual, yeah, not physical death, yeah. So uh, death entered this world through the disobedience of Adam. That's what lost all the benefits that God would offer us, you know, in Eden, etc. Christ's counterpart, that was Adam was Christ's enemy, which now has been conquered by Christ's own act of disobedience. So he's saying the person who has placed his faith in Jesus, okay, all right, uh, death is brought about by suffering and sin, etc., in this world, resulting from Adam's sin. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, okay, Christ has overcome what Adam has done through his obedience of dying on the cross. So those who are united with Christ in his death 
or participating in his victory over the power of sin. A canon should serve the new power that's over them in Christ, which is the divine power of righteousness. For a person was united with Christ, he or she was compelled by the power of sin to violate the good law that God had given, so that the law led to condemnation rather than to salvation. But now that part of the self that was subject to sin, the flesh, has been put to death in Christ. A person no longer needs to submit to its cravings and violate the law. And he says those who are united with Christ will eventually experience the complete salvation that will come when Christ redeems this fallen world. So what he's basically saying there is that uh, Christ's death and resurrection means freedom from the powers that are opposed to God. In other words, that we don't have to be enslaved by sin base desires, etc. Christ gives us spirit to overcome that flesh that is subject to sin. The cravings that want to violate the law. Christ has given us the grace to, uh, to overcome those. Those who have been united with Christ will eventually experience the complete salvation that's going to come when Christ redeems this fallen world. Again, Complete uh, union with Christ and complete salvation is not going to happen here in this world. It's only when Christ comes to redeem it. Another point, the gospel message is consistent with God's dealings with Israel and represents the fulfillment of his promise. promises. That's in chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 36. Now, it's here at this point that Paul deals with the major questions that have been simmering below, beneath the surface in the circle all along. If what he says is true, that God's act of salvation comes equally to Jews and Gentiles alike, with no distinction between them, so if it's true that God's act of salvation comes equally to Jews and Gentiles alike, with no distinction between them, Hasn't God gone back in his promises to Israel? Well, says, on the contrary, God's decision to save Gentiles and Jews by faith is a fulfillment of his promises. And it's consistent with how he has always worked, as evident from the Jewish scriptures themselves. And the scriptures through the story of Abraham tells us, you know, it's, it's, uh, everyone is on the same footing. Abraham was not a Jew. Out of him came God's chosen people, but he himself was not a Jew. He was made right with God by trusting in God's promises. That's why he gets a, that way he gets a term, he's a father of faith. Yeah. The same, the same is true of uh, Islam. So. Abraham is still a safe father in faith as well. Uh, okay, so uh, God's decision to save Gentiles and Jews by faith is the fulfillment of his promises, and it's consistent with how he's always worked, as we can see in the Jewish scriptures. God has always chosen people not on the basis of their actions or works, 
but on the basis of his own will. Points out the Jewish prophets indicate that God shows mercy on whom he chooses. And that he had planned from ages past to make a people who is not his own, and the Gentiles, into his own. Whereas many of the Jews would be rejected. This is in the scriptures. God shows his mercy on whoever he wishes. He had planned from a long time ago to make a people who were not his own, his own were the Jews, the Gentiles, into his own. Whereas many of the Jews themselves would be rejected. The failing lies not in God, but in the Jews who have not accepted Christ. Because they mistakenly suppose that God gave them the law as a means to attain a right standing before it. Whereas the law points to Christ. So the problem is not in God, but in the Jews. They haven't accepted Christ. So they were thinking that God gave them a law which would enable them to have a right standing before God. That's how they would be saved. So instead, he says the law points to Christ. A right standing before God comes exclusively through faith in Christ. Any of the Jews have been faithless. God himself is faithful. How does he show his faithfulness? He's remained true to his promises to the Jews, saving a remnant of them. Because among his first believers are all fellow Jews. True to his promises, saving a remnant of them, and using the salvation of the Gentiles to bring about his ultimate purpose, the salvation of all Israel. He points out that the reason conversion or acceptance of the Gentiles into the faith was done to make the Jews jealous of what the Gentiles now had and make them uh, come back to accept what Christ was offering to them. So in a sense, uh, you know, what they, the gifts that God lavished on the Gentiles now, in a sense, were made to uh, make the Jews jealous. This is something that they should have, so they would return to God. So actually, the presence of Gentiles in God's new people was meant to uh, draw the Jews back to him. Uh, so Gentiles who have been added to the people of God must not flaunt themselves over the Jews. Israel is still the people of God's special call, and they once again bring them all to faith. Still jealousy in their hearts, so they return to him. And one of the key issues that he wants to, to make sure that they realize is that the law-free gospel that he preaches, they're not to follow the law, doesn't lead to lawless behavior. It's in the last part of the letter, chapter 12, verse 1. 
chapter 15, verse 13. So those who believe in Christ give themselves to others in self-sacrificing love. So this is the new cultic act of worship that fulfills the old cultic acts of sacrifice. In other words, what is going to be pleasing to God? Not the cultic acts of sacrifice that were made in the temple. Now, the cultic act of worship in which a believer now practices self-sacrificing love. So love is going to replace the sacrificial animals in the temple. That's the new cult. The cult isn't sacrificing animals. The cult is cult of worship is practicing love. Believers in Christ are to be obedient to civil authorities. They're to follow the core of the Torah by loving others as themselves. The core of the Torah, that the individual loves themselves. To lead moral, upright lives in view of their coming salvation. to refrain from passing judgment or doing things that might offend others. Paul's law free gospel wasn't going to lead to lawless activities. Okay, to close out now, the very close of the letter, Paul indicates his reasons for writing. Chapter 15, verse 14, over to the end, chapter 16, verse 27. He discusses his travel plans. He sends greetings to a large number of people in the congregation. It's a long list. In fact, he greets so many people by name. There are 28 people, in fact. Some scholars have questioned whether this final chapter originally belonged to the letter. So it was written to a congregation of Paul had never visited. How did he know all these people? He never went there. If the chapter is original to the book, it may indicate that a number of people whom Paul had come to know in other contexts had moved to Rome or were known to be visiting there. That's why he mentions them. We don't know for sure whether Paul's plans to visit the congregation and route to Spain ever took place. According to the Acts of the Apostles, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem before he could make the trip. He was then almost coincidentally sent to Rome to stand trial before the Roman Emperor for his alleged crimes. He did wind up in Rome, not because of his uh, route to uh, Spain, but he's a prisoner. The author of Acts doesn't seem to know of any contact between Paul and the Christians living in, in Rome prior to his arrival. We know according to tradition, Paul was martyred in Rome. Clements, the bishop of Rome, writing around the year 95 AD, 
mentions Paul's death as occurring during the tyrannical persecution of Christians during the reign of Nero, sometime probably around 64 AD. Even though we can't gauge whether Paul succeeded in his Western mission, or in fact, whether he ever gained a following among Christians in Rome, he certainly succeeded in one respect. Romans is the most closely reasoned letter that survives from his hand. Logical one point to the other. He continues to intrigue scholars today and also to inspire believers. He lays out in the clearest terms important aspects of Paul's gospel, namely God's power that brings salvation both Jew and Gentile. Questions on that. So this very theological. He's not dealing with issues uh, or problems, etc., in the community of Rome. As I said, he's laying out his gospel, why he is preaching that both Jew and Gentile stand on equal footing before God. They're all sinners. They stand on equal footing because they both can be saved through faith in Christ. Okay. The problem is that the Jews have rejected that. They do not believe in Christ. They still rely on practicing the law. Okay, the Gentiles uh, have converted to Christ through their belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus. They don't worry about practicing the law. It's their faith in Christ that brings them justification and righteousness. And then uh, finally, the, uh, it's part of God's plan. He didn't abandon the Jews. They've rejected him. He sent the Messiah to them. God hasn't turned his back on the Jews because the remnant of them become core of his believers, the apostles. And, and the hope is that uh, the conversion of the Gentiles to the faith will make the Gentile, make the Jews jealous okay, of what should have been theirs exclusively now you know, is, is something that's given to the Gentiles. And hopefully, you know, that will make them envious when it went to its to enjoy the same benefits that the Gentiles do. Any questions? All right, we'll see you next week. We're going to do definitely Ephesians. And, uh, we'll do Second Thessalonians and Colossians. Second Thessalonians, Colossians, and We'll talk about that famous passage about wives must be submissive to their husbands, okay? <laughs> I'll leave that to the end because I know you stick around for that. Thanks, Father. Okay, good night. We'll see you next week. Good night. Thank you.